What a privilege it is to be in the house of the Lord and to know that the Lord of the house is in the house, to worship with brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm certainly grateful for the presence of my uh, beautiful wife and my granddaughter who share sacred space with, uh, with us today. Thank you so much, Dr. Danny Wood, for your graciousness, not only now, but all of the time that I've known you. It's a joy to stand here in a place where the gospel is being preached every Sunday. So I'm very comfortable, and I thank God for, once again, the extension of this, this invitation to my very good friend and president, Dr. Andy Westmoreland, and my dear friend, Dr. Uh, uh, Timothy George Ardeen, who I love very, very much. A lot of times people ask me, oh, what is this chair, Charles T. Carter chair? I've had people think that it was an actual chair that was ornamented with a uh, bronze plaque with his name on it. Uh, Jesus was asked by Philip in the 14th chapter of John, verse 8, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. To which Jesus says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When you've seen Dr. Charles T. Carter, you've seen the chair. He's the personification of the chair. If the chair represents dignity, it's Dr. Carter. If it represents prolific preaching, it is personified in the preaching presence of Dr. Charles T. Carter. And time will not afford me the opportunity, like the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 11, to speak of the things I really want to say about him. But we know we have heart language and our silence screams when it comes to our relationships. So I thank God for, for him. And all of you who are here, thank you for having me. I want to read, and I'm going to break a homiletical rule for my students who are here. I know the rule, but I'm breaking it today. I'm not here as a homiletician. I'm here as a preacher. Genesis 22, verses 1 and 2. I want to talk about living at the intersection of history and destiny. Living at the intersection of history and destiny. Hear these words from the word. Genesis 22, verses 1 and 2. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrificed him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Sacred history is really our attempt to live in the present as if we are viewing the past. It is James Weldon Johnson's rendition put to music. He said, as a musicologist, God of our weary years, God of our silent tears, thou who has brought us thus far along the way, Thou who is by thy might, let us into the light. Keep us forever in the path, we pray. Lest our feet stray from the places, our God, where we met thee. Lest our hearts, drunk with the wine of the world, we forget thee. Shadowed beneath thy hand, may we forever stand. True to our God, true to our native land. Sacred history is Søren Kierkegaard's dictum put to poetry. Kierkegaard was a 19th century Danish existentialist philosopher. He said, life must be lived forward, 
but it can only be understood backward. Sacred history is Abraham's attempt to align his history and his destiny. His history in Genesis 12. Leave your country, leave your kindred, leave your acquaintances and go to a land that I'm going to show you and out of your sea all nations will be blessed. That's his history. But his destiny seems to be threatened. His destiny seems to be jeopardized in Genesis chapter 22. Abraham, take your son, your only son, the son you love, Isaac, and offer him up as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. And how does history and destiny coexist here? When God is seemingly saying, cancel out your tomorrow. The Bible is attractive. And yet it can become less attractive to those who are so accustomed to seeing the same thing in similar ways throughout the familiar pages of Scripture. Never expect to hear anything different. And so we put our minds on cruise control because we know this story. We've heard it preached. We've taught it. Uh, we've read it. We know it. My wife and I, oh, some 18 years ago, stayed on Times Square in New York City. I was preaching for the Billy Graham Evangelist Association, and we decided that we were going to leave the hotel, staying right, right there on Times Square, and we were going to walk up and down the street. Of course, people could tell that we were tourists because every few yards we stopped and looked up and talked and took pictures and a few more yards, stopped, looked up and took pictures. But you could tell the residents because their gait, their cadence, their rhythm was unimpeded. They walked forward without looking up, turned to the side to avoid traffic, etc. But they had seen it all. It was no longer uh, enthralling to them. I think we can become that way with scripture, that we become residents of the story and not tourists of the story. So much so that I think that one of the greatest obstacles to the knowledge of the Bible is the knowledge of the Bible. That what keeps us from knowing more about the Bible is what we think we already know about the Bible. But I hope that we will take this passage, this story that's so familiar and crawl up into the cranium of God and stay there long enough until the uncommon is seen in the common and the unfamiliar is seen in the unfamiliar and the majestic is seen in the mundane and the stupendous is seen in the simple because Abraham comes to a place in this story where faith seemingly intersects at the place of apparent futility where this idea of joy intersects at the place of apparent despair and where the holy seemingly intersects at the place of the holocaust because the holocaust is literally that of setting a body on fire and reducing it to ashes and yet, this is the place, I contend, that we only discover 
that the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead enables the believer to trust in the God of the promise even when it looks like the promise of God will fail. That the spirit, the power of the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead enables the believer to trust in the God of the promise even when it looks like the promise of God is going to fail. And the Bible says in verse 1 that God tested Abraham. The authorized King James Version says God tempted Abraham. And we know what James says in James 1.13 that God does not tempt anyone, neither can he be tempted by anyone. Because after all, what could you tempt God with? What do we have that God does not have that he would want to have? No, God does not tempt us because that leads to destructive purposes. God tests us because that leads to constructive purposes. God is not satisfied with our faith being flabby. He wants to stretch our faith so that it is elasticized. Because after all, untested, untried faith is no faith at all. We go from faith to faith, grace to grace, and glory to glory. And here God is going to test Abraham's faith, his loyalty to God, so that God is the ultimate, and God has no rival at all. Abraham, here I am. Take your son. I have two. Your only son. The son you love. I love both of them. Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac, whose name means laughter. This is no laughing matter. And yet God is saying to Abraham, take laughter and submit him to lamentation. And how do you do that? And take him to one of the mountains that I will show you and offer him up as a burnt offering. Kill him and then reduce him to ashes. And I will tell you about that mountain. Hear me when I tell you that God challenges us to give up what has already been given to us that we might grasp the one who gives. God challenges us to give up what has already been given to us in order to grasp the one, the God, who has already given. And that giving is not necessarily giving up wrong for right or evil for good. Sometimes it is giving up that which is good for that which is best because God has something better for us. Take him on one of the mountains I will tell you about. It's interesting to me that Abraham would have never in my thinking be, would have never been ready for Genesis chapter 22 had he not been obedient in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis 12, God said to Abraham, leave your country, leave your kindred, leave your acquaintances and go to a land that I'm going to show you. Had Abraham not been willing, had not been willing to live year of the Chaldees, then he would not have been ready to go to Mount Moriah. It is only through our prior obedience that God prepares us for a greater task and a greater challenges. Each victory will help you some 
other to win. And Abraham decides that he is going to do exactly what God told him to do. Verse 3, early in the morning, he got up and he saddled his donkey. He cut enough wood and he took the two servants and his son and headed out to find the place where God would tell him Isaac was to be offered as a burnt sacrifice. Don't make Abraham a plastic saint. Don't make him a mannequin. Abraham had feelings. James A. Sanders, who taught canonical hermeneutics at the Union, Union Theological Seminary in New York City many years ago and other places, said, biblical characters do not primarily serve us as models for morality, but rather as mirrors for identity. Mirrors for identity. Mirrors for identity. What would you have done had you been challenged by God to take one of your children and offer him or her up as a burnt offering? How much sleep would you have had that night? How much sleep do you have when you know in the morning you are having serious surgery? How much sleep do you have when you know you have to go to court and stand there with someone whose future will be on the line? How much sleep do you have when there is a significant decision that you have to make? I want to at least suggest to you the possibility that Abraham did not snore that night. I want to at least offer to you the possibility that Abraham did not have the most restful night that night. Because when I read Genesis chapter 21, verse number 11, when God says, Abraham, take and obey the words of your wife, Sarah, and evict Hagar and her son, who is your son, uh, Ishmael, out into the wilderness. The Bible says in verse 11 of Genesis 21 that this distressed Abraham. If he's going to be distressed at an eviction, how is it going to feel when it comes to an extermination? I believe that Abraham, like you and I, would have had some distress and a sense of unrest that night. But he got up the next morning and he cut enough wood for the sacrifice. He saddled the donkey and he took his servants and his son and they went toward the place that God would tell him. God was his GPS. He didn't have any kind of map. God was that. And then Bible says in verse 4, on the fourth day, they arrived, the third day, they arrived at the place where the sacrifice would be made. Three days passed, and we don't have the record of a single word that Abraham uttered. We don't have the record of a single thought that he had. What do you do in three days from verse 3 and verse 4? You cannot not think. I wonder if Abraham rehearsed in God's ears the promises that God had made. You said in Genesis 12, verse number 3, you're going to give me a great land, a great nation, and make me a great name. And out of my seed, not seeds, but seed, all nations would be blessed. And now you're asking me to cancel out what seems to be my tomorrow? You protected us, when we got to the promised land, the first place we came to was famine stricken. And we made our way down to Egypt. And there I could have lost my life and my wife. But I kept my life and my wife because you made a promise. And we went down there with nothing. We came back with riches. You kept us. God, you said in Genesis 15 and 1, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. That nothing can get to me unless you permit it. God, you have 
kept your word thus far. Now, how will you bring my history and my destiny together so that I can trust in the God of the promise when it looks as if the promise of God is not going to be fulfilled? Three days and nothing is recorded. And yet, you and I know that Abraham had to think, had to talk with God. Now, let me just say this to you. It's all right to ask God questions. You just as well as ask him. The Bible says in Psalm 139 verse 2, he knows your thoughts are far off. So if you don't articulate it, it, it's not that he doesn't know it. He knows it before you get it. He, in fact, abducts or kidnaps your thought. And before you get the thought, he interprets the thought. So go on and tell him how you feel. You might feel like he is not orchestrating your life the way you like it to be orchestrated. You may not like the way he's guiding your life. Go on and tell him. Because God is not fragile. He is faithful. And he will give you the luxury of the first word, but he will always reserve the last word for himself. So much so that he'll let Job talk for 35 chapters from Job 3 to 37 and then say, may I just have four chapters and talk to Job about Four chapters and Job will say in chapter 42, I heard of you at my ears, but now my eyes have seen you face to face and I have to repent in sackcloth and ashes because I didn't know a thing about what I was talking about. And God will still call him in chapter 42 of Job, verse 7, what he called him in chapter 1 and chapter 2, my servant Job. Abraham had to think. And God says to him in that fifth verse, when they come to Moriah, that's the place. And the Bible says that Abraham has come there and is ready to carry out what God has told him to do. I think that Abraham has now in those three days, I think that's why the three days may have been necessary. Not for God, but for Abraham. I believe that Abraham had already offered up Isaac on the altar where Isaac had to be altered, offered. And that was the altar of his heart. Isaac was just as good as dead in Abraham's mind because Abraham had already offered him up on the altar of his heart, which made it unnecessary for him to be offered up on the altar on top of Mount Moriah. It's divine human instrumentality that we do what God has called us to do and God does what only God can do. We take and march around the Jericho walls and God without a bulldozer or a crane pulls them down. We fill up the water pots and the water looks at Jesus and H2O blushes into wine. We take and roll back Lazarus of stone and Jesus calls him and says, Lazarus, come forth. And when Abraham took care of what he needed to take care of at the bottom of Mount Moriah, at the top of Mount Moriah, God already had a ram in the bush to take care of the sacrifice. Abraham said to these servants, stay here while the boy and I go up yonder and worship, not sacrifice, but worship. And then we're coming down afterwards. How can that be? God said, offer him up as a burnt offering. And yet Abraham says, we're going up there to worship and we're coming back down. I wonder if this is not some revelatory moment for Abraham. Jesus perhaps is alluding to this when he says in John eight fifty six when he's speaking to these ecclesiastical bosses, says, uh, you say you are your father, Abraham. No, I know your father. 
you of your father the devil because when Abraham, your alleged father, saw my day, he rejoiced and was glad 2,000 years before Jesus came. Something must have taken place to transform a sacrifice into liturgy, into worship. Some relevatory moment, some kind of manifestation in the mind of Abraham. And the Bible says, he says, we're going up there to worship. Abraham is ready to worship before God works. I think oftentimes worship for us is a response to what God does, which is good. But I think worship ought to always be a pre-response to what God does in anticipation that he's going to do it. So I'm going to worship you even before I get to the top of the mountain. I'm going to give you praise before you bring deliverance. I'm going to thank you before you work it out. I'm going to give you worship before you bring the healing. I'm going to do it because I know that you're able to do it. So I'm trusting in the God of the promise whose word cannot fail. They're walking up Mount Moriah and this chapter, which would have started before God even spoke with a song on Abraham's lips, perhaps when the saints go marching in, which is in the major chord, is now reduced to the minor chord of Frederick Chapin, Chapin's version of the funeral dirge. And now it's silence. And the silence is broken by Isaac. The Bible says that Isaac is, you have to see this, carrying the wood. It anticipates John nineteen seventeen, where Jesus carries his own cross to the place of Golgotha called the skull. And Abraham is carrying the knife and the fire, probably pieces of rock that would be rubbed together to produce a fire, a spark. And Isaac asked his father, Dad, I, I see the wood, I see the fire, but where is the lamb for the sacrifice? This is an anticipatory question that reverberates throughout the corridors of time for 2,000 years. It's not answered until John the Baptist answers it in John 1.29. Behold, look, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. There he is. There he is, the Lamb. And Abraham answers that question by saying, Behold, my son, God himself will provide. God himself will provide. He will provide a lamb for the sacrifice because he will be the lamb. In the incarnation, God became what he was not and yet remained who he was, God. He became what he was not, a human being, and yet remained who he was, God. It's a mystery that none of us will ever be able to understand. My son, God himself will provide. I think we have taken that text and we've materialized it. It's always some material provision, some physical provision, some promotion, some kind of escalation in terms of publicity and notoriety. We've done the same thing with Isaiah 53 
and five, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we're healed. We've done the same thing with Philippians 4.19. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory through Christ Jesus. Primarily, this is a spiritual truth. Not physical, not material. Yes, it can apply in a secondary way, but primarily, this is a spiritual truth. Because the stigmata is the only answer to the stigma of the world. It's the wounds of Jesus that cleanses us from the stigma of our sin. And here, Abraham in some way recognizes that God is going to provide a lamb for the sacrifice. And he says himself, because Jesus does not bring the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. They get up to the top of the mountain. Notice the language. Abraham is carrying the knife and the wood. Abraham is constructing the altar. Abraham is arranging the wood on the altar. Abraham lays his son on the altar. Abraham binds his son on the altar. Abraham the father is doing all of that in reference to his son. And what is the son doing? Yielding, cooperating, giving himself to it. Don't let artists misconstrue the reality. Isaac is not some little two, three-year-old boy. Abraham was 100 when Isaac was born. Isaac is probably a teenager, 14 or 15, which would make Abraham about 114, 115 years of age. Isaac is stronger than Abraham. He's faster than Abraham. He's more dexterous than Abraham. And he could have resisted Abraham. But he allows himself to be taken and laid on the altar, bound there without any resistance. Oh, I wish you could see our Lord one more time. Jesus, Isaiah, 800 years before it took place, he says in verse 3, uh, verse 7 of Isaiah 53, he is led as a lamb before the slaughter and sheep before shearers is silent. He opened not his mouth. He is willing to die for us. And this is pre-planned. Calvary is not plan B, God's reaction to Adam's fall. Calvary is plan A. God's response before Adam fell. It's what John says in Revelation 13 and 8, that there was a lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. It's what Luke writes about in his historical book in Acts chapter 2, verse 23 and 24, that according to the predetermined counsel of God, Jesus was arrested by the chief priests, scribes, and elders and was crucified. But on the third day, God raised him. Calvary was preplanned for us. So that we would have salvation. And the Bible says, and slow down the frame because we read the Bible too quickly. As Abraham took that knife, you ought to be able to see sweat coming from his brow. You ought to be able to see his struggle in yet still trying to align the destiny and the history of God. But something happened in that moment. Where he reasons, maybe this is where it happened in Hebrews eleven seventeen and 19, that Abraham reached the point where he said 
that if it was necessary for Isaac to be killed, then God was able to raise Isaac from the dead in order to keep his promise. He got ready to do that. And the Bible says, in that moment, hear these words from the angel of the Lord. Abraham, Abraham, that twice repeated name like Moses, Moses, Exodus 3, 4. Take off the shoes from your feet. The ground you're standing on is holy ground. Like Samuel in 1 Samuel 3 and 10. Samuel, Samuel. And his response was, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Like Martha, Martha in Luke 10, 41. You're worried about many things, but Mary has chosen the best part that shall not be taken from her. Like Simon, Simon in Luke 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you. And after you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Like Saul, Saul in Acts 9, 4. Why are you persecuting me? And when God calls your name, Robert, Robert, Sarah, Sarah, Larry, Larry, Josephine, Josephine, Michael, Michael, Randy, Randy, Charles, Charles, Thomas, Thomas. It means that this is an urgent call. And all of us ought to say, hush, hush. Somebody is calling my name. It sounds like Jesus. And the Bible says that the angel of the Lord said to Abraham, stop. Just in the nick of time. No wonder Paul says in Romans 5 and 6. So that while we were impotent, without strength, just at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I don't know if you ever had in your life where God just stepped in at the right time. When the deadline was almost over, when it seemed hopeless, when the relationship seemed to have an irreparable rift. When you seemed as if it was all over, God stepped in just in the nick of time. He's an on-time God, and he's a God who is never early. He's never too late. He may not come when you want him, but he's always on time. And amen deserves to be there. Stop. Now I know that you fear me more than anything else because you would not withhold your son your only son from me. Now, read this right. This is not an admission of a belief in process theology and open theism, which posits that God does not know the future because the future is not yet. Mm, no, no. God is before time and on the other side of eternity. This is an admission that God says to Abraham, literally, now you know what I've always known. But I had to let you go through it so that you would know that your loyalty to me was greater than your loyalty to your first love, your son. Now you know what I've always known. And Abraham must have in that moment began to rejoice. And God was said, said to him, there over in the, the thicket, there is a ram caught by its horn. I think God synchronized the ham, the ram approaching the thicket with Abraham and Isaac's going up Mount Moriah so that at the right moment, 
the ram is caught by his horn in the thicket while Abraham is getting ready to kill uh, his son. This is not accidental. This is not coincidental. This is not incidental. It's providential that God would work this out. And God says, now let your son go. You know what I've always known. And you take and offer that ram in place of your son. Ah, substitutionary vicarious atonement that he died in my place. He took the lick that I deserved. And I can only hear God saying to Abraham after Abraham said, God will provide, I'm naming this place God will provide, that God says, I'm going to swear by myself and I'm going to say this the second time because as human beings, we either need the second time because we get amnesia or we're hard of hearing. And God has to keep saying the same thing over and over and over again. I'm swear by myself because there's no one else that I can swear by that's greater than I am that I'm going to bless you, give you a great name, and give you great descendants. And as they made their way down the mountain to meet with the servants, all one can think is to realize that the servants see exactly what God has done because somebody's got to testify that God can take you from a sacrifice to a place of worship. And they made their way to Beersheba. I've got three more minutes. I'm going to do it. (laughs) Elivazel, who was a Jew, winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, said that he was glad he was a Jew and not a Christian because the father of the Jews spared his son, but the father of the Christians did not. I'm not anti-Semitic. I just want to say I'm glad I'm a Christian because the father did not spare his son. Paul says in Romans 8.32, God who did not spare his son but gave him up for us all, shall he not freely with him give us all things? Jesus died on that cross. And when he died, the Bible says that the veil in the temple was rent, torn from top to bottom. Not bottom to top, but top to bottom. And Elvina M. Hall evidently saw this moment and picked up her pen of inspiration and dipped it in the ink of illumination and wrote this song. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. But not only did he die, because Calvary was never enough, there had to be a resurrection. And on the third day, up from the grave, he arose so much so that we can live. God sent his son, they called him Jesus. He came to love, see, he came to heal, he came to forgive. He came to die to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior live. Here it is. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. Life is worth living because he lives. And he rose. And he ascended. And sat on the right hand of the Father because his work was finished. And he's coming again. And when he comes again. And when before the throne, I stand complete in him. By sins my soul to save my lips shall still repeat Jesus paid it all 
All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And therefore, brothers and sisters, history and destiny meet when we recognize that the power of the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead enables us to trust in the God of the promise, even when it looks like the promise of God will fail. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your unfailing covenant love. And thank you for the fact that you are faithful, that we can trust in you. Help us to trust you in spite of what we face, that we might bring glory to you and honor you by our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.